There is now no condemnation, no ultimate eternal judgment for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free, has set you free from the law of sin and death. And that's what the chapter was about. Being set free from the law of sin and death, the law which due to the nature of our flesh was empowered, empowered and we died. Sin comes alive. We learn about it through the nature of the law. And our flesh and our inability to live as Christ would have us live, as the law would have us live, kills us. Because the penalty, the wages of sin, are death. Exactly. There is no condemnation there for those who are of us who are in Christ Jesus. That's the good news. The difficult news is that it's sometimes difficult to experience or know the reality of that life due to the nature of being in the flesh, of living in this world. But we are not, Paul says in verse 9, in the flesh. But we are in the Spirit, since the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Him. But since you belong to Him, I'm going to paraphrase here. Since you belong to Him, you have the Spirit of Christ. And if you have the Spirit of Christ, then you have within you the grace you need not to live in flesh. Ruled by your flesh, in, in, enslaved to the desires of your flesh. But instead you have within you what you need, the grace of Jesus, what you need, the Spirit of God, to live in the Spirit, in the true hope of the expectation for the coming of Christ. If the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, and that Spirit does... He who raised Christ from the dead will give life to your mortal bodies also through His Spirit that dwells in you. Chapter 8 is a chapter of good news. We are called to life in the Spirit, not to life in the flesh. Life in the flesh brings death. Life in the Spirit brings life eternal. So then, brothers and sisters, we are debtors not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are children of God. We're not enslaved to the flesh anymore. We may be tempted by the flesh. We may be drawn and wooed by the flesh. But we are children of God. Children of the Spirit, empowered by the Spirit. And even when we don't know how to pray, the Spirit lives within us, empowering our prayers, enabling our prayers, calling us to cry out, Daddy, Daddy, Abba, Father. And still we have sufferings. Even when we live in the Spirit, we still suffer, often because we're living in the Spirit. We still suffer. I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory about to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the children of God. We're not there yet. We're not perfect yet. 
We still make some pretty horrible mistakes. We are still in need of being perfected. We're still in the process of sanctification. It is as if we're a mother groaning with much labor pains to give birth. And it's not easy. And it hurts. But eventually, the birth does come. The whole creation is groaning in these labor pains with us, awaiting the perfection of that God has for us. For it, verse 24, for in hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what is seen? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. True hope, true elpis, the Greek word for hope. True elpis is not some mamby-pamby, oh, I hope it comes to pass. It is an assurance, a faithful statement of hope. An expectation in the spirit that it comes to pass. But it is still not seen. Likewise, the spirit helps us in our weaknesses, for we do not know how to pray as we ought. Even amidst this process, we still struggle for how to move forward. And the Spirit enables us in our prayers. We all, here we come to one of the hardest parts that we dealt with a couple of times. We know that all things work together for good for those who love God, who are called according to His purpose. In truth, we know that means that no matter what we face, we face it with God. We do not face it alone. God will move into all of our circumstances. And even if we can't see it in that exact moment, it may take hindsight to see it. Nevertheless, we can know that in every experience and every event, God will move in. And in a mysterious, miraculous way, move to do some good. Somewhere in the event. It is not God who does it. It's not God who causes it. But nevertheless, in the midst of it, since we do not face it alone, we face it with God, God will move into each circumstance. And somewhere, and it may take hindsight, somewhere, God will be doing good. And notice, for those who love God, who are called according to his purpose. So not in every circumstance unless that condition is met. All right? This is a warp speed jump through, by the way. We are moving quickly. What then are we to say about these things? If God is for us, who cares who's against us? If God is for us, I don't give a diddly who's against us. Kind of sounds kind of strange, but this is almost preaching mode right now. I want an amen there. If God is for us, who cares who's against us? Amen. amen. There you go. He who did not withhold his own son, but gave him up for all of us, will he not with him also give us everything else? Who will bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies, who is to condemn. It is Christ Jesus who died. Yes, who was, has been, was raised from the dead. Who's he talking about here? 
Who will bring anything to the charge of God's elect? Who are God's elect? We are. Eklektos. Huh? We are. We are. Children of God. The people of God. Those who exercise faith. The faithers are the children of God. The eklektos. As we said last time, the, I guess it was last time. God, these times kind of meld together. The elect, that word comes from Greek. But we also get another word from eklektos. Eclectic. It's not just a narrowly defined, narrow, narrow, tiny little group. It's not just the Jews. It's all of those from every nation, every tribe and race, every time who profess Christ Jesus as Lord, who are living in the Spirit, who are part of the body of Christ. All those everywhere, not just those with a Hebrew pedigree, not just those who follow the kosher dietary regulations, not just those who are circumcised. In other words, he's saying to those, those Jewish Christians, it's not just you. You may try to bring charges against God's elect who are Gentiles. Huh. Sorry, you can't. The only person who could do that would be Jesus. And he died for those very same Gentile Christians. If God is for us, who, is, who can possibly be against us? He who did not withhold his own son but gave himself up for us, Will he not with him also give us everything else? Who will bring any charge against God's elect? You might try. You're not going to succeed. It is God who justifies. Who is to contend? It is Christ Jesus who died. Yes, who, has ra who was raised, who was at the right hand of God, who indeed intercedes for us. Jesus who has a right to bring charges against us. God who has a right to bring charges against us. Do not do that. They don't do it. They don't expect you to live as if you were Jews, you Gentiles. Those charges don't stick. God the Father gave Jesus. Jesus died for you. Jesus died for those Gentile Christians. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will hardship or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? All of these things look like they might very well be causing trouble. All of them reflect opposition, oppression, disaster. And Deuteronomic theology, sound Deuteronomic theology teaches us that if you have done bad, you, you get punished for it. And if you are experiencing persecution and opposition and distress like this, if you're experiencing hardship, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, that's poverty, peril or sword, my goodness, you must have done something wrong to deserve it, right? No. As it is written for your sake, we are being killed all the day long, we are counted as sheep for the slaughter. Deuteronomic theology doesn't work here, friends. If you're being persecuted, being persecuted for Christ's sake, if you're being persecuted, that's not a sign that God has forsaken you or that God is judging you. The Gentile Christians are being persecuted by other Gentiles and by Jews and Jewish Christians. It's not a sign that they're doing something wrong. No, we're, we're accounted as sheep to be slaughtered. 
In all things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced, I am persuaded, that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. And that's where we were. <laughs> you know, chapter 8 is about life in the Spirit. But life in the Spirit isn't a rose garden. Life in the Spirit isn't always easy. It can be a struggle. It can be frustrating. And even when crap happens, that's not proof that you're being condemned by God. Remember the general audience here. Remember the specific audience. He's writing to Jewish Christians in the Roman church who have been persecuting Gentile Christians continually for many various reasons. Speaking from his past experience as pastors of churches, Gentile churches, where Jewish Christians have come along and told them, you can't be a Christian unless you stop being a Gentile and start being a Jew. Men, you've got to get circumcised. Women, you've got to start cooking kosher, making kosher clothing. Got to stop planting your field with multiple kinds of seed and stop marring the edges of your beard. Oops, I'm in trouble. <laughs> I mean, they were coming along and teaching these Gentile Christians you couldn't trust Paul. You couldn't trust what he said. Paul was preaching a deliverance from slavery to the law. Paul was preaching a deliverance from slavery to the flesh and life and freedom in Christ Jesus. Empowered by God's grace. Life in the spirit. Free to life eternal. Not enslaved to the passions of the flesh. But a servant of Christ. The Jewish Christians were saying. No, no, you Gentile Christians. You've got to become a good Jew in order to be a good Christian. You might get in. You might be able to enter into the church and become a member of the body of Christ. But you're always going to be a second or third class citizen. Until you become a Jew, too. Don't let those charges stick to God's elect, he says. They won't. Jesus certainly hasn't brought them. God doesn't bring them. God gave Jesus, and Jesus died. Uh-uh. And nothing will separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Notice... Everything that is listed here in this beautiful sequence. For I am convinced that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation. Now you would think that part in verse 39 nor anything else in all creation would capture the, the, the last or the whole panoply of everything else that he may have missed in that preceding sequence. But the one thing that he didn't include. Did you see it? The self. Yourself. He doesn't say, for I am convinced that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor yourself nor anything else in all creation. No. 
I wish he had. That would be great. Everything that's in this list is external to you. It's external to you. Nor anything, even, even that anything else in all creation. They are all articulated as in opposition to or outside of you. You could shorten this by saying, not a single thing outside of yourself can separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's up to you. You can certainly do that. But he doesn't say that. He's focusing in on the external character of that which will try to separate you. Lots of things will try to separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Thank you. Lots of things will try to separate you. But they will not succeed apart from you. Apart from you. Where is he getting this, you know, the psalm there, the 42nd, I guess, where he's, we are considered a sheep to be slaughtered? I'm, for get everything you just said. But as it is written, yeah. for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are accounted as sheep to be slaughtered. As it is written, that was back in Psalms, right? That's a scripture passage. What's yeah. the reading? Who has the reference? Yeah. Psalm 44, verse 22. Read it. Yea, for thy sake we are all... Paul is doing what rabbis always did. They cited from the, the Old Testament, the Hebrew Bible, the Hebrew Scriptures, to prove their point. He's citing that right there from the Psalms. That statement, that idea, it's the reality. That is, that's going to happen. For your sake... We are being killed all the day long. Who's the you're there? Children of God. God. Exactly. We are being killed all the day long. We are accounted as sheep to be slaughtered. But then we're taking that to heart, though. No. The Jews. No. The Jews didn't take that to heart. We missed that. Okay, I get the connection. We are God's chosen few. All others shall be damned. There is no place in heaven for you. We can't have heaven crammed. That wonderful old Calvinist song. You know, heaven forbid. We don't, there's not enough room up there. Those mansions have a limited number of rooms in them. I've got mine. You can't have one unless you're a member of the elect. And you can only be a member of the elect if you meet up to those standards that I believe are important. No drinking, no smoking, no makeup, no dancing, no movies. Remember that stuff? No fun. No fun. No breathing. No breathing, exactly. Remember the, the, the monkeys, the three monkeys? See no evil, hear no evil, speak no evil. My dad had that on his wall and it had a fourth one, have no fun. <laughs> exactly. They didn't take that. The Jews didn't take that to heart. They were living by that Deuteronomic theology. If you're suffering, if you're dying, if you are being persecuted, if you have... If you've come up against a difficult time in life, it's because you've done something to deserve it. We heard that in the story of Job. Oh, somebody must have sinned. Did you sin, Job? No, I didn't sin. I was righteous. Your son sinned. Aha. 
Someone sinned to cause all this to happen. Uh-huh. That's Deuteronomic theology. And that doesn't apply here. No. We're being persecuted because we are followers of Christ. Because we are children of God. Because we are living in the Spirit. Or trying to. Because we are trying to live by faith. We are being persecuted. Outside of Paul, who would have told everybody this? Because you know, uh, who would have informed all of these Jewish Jews and Christians outside of Paul? Jesus. But to that, to that, he he often spoke though. At least what we have in the Bible, it seems sometimes in parables it may not have been clear to people. But you know, you don't really hear the other disciples. They wouldn't have lived real long. You get a little bit of it in John. You get a little bit of it in John, but but it's weak there. But it's there. Now think about it: the woman caught in adultery. What gospel is that in? Well, it floats around the textual history, but yeah, that's where it, it's been placed. The story of the woman caught in adultery. What does he said? Let the one who was without sin. Cast the first squirrel stone. That's from South Park. But the one who was without sin cast the first stone. And what does that say? Exactly. There is no one who was without sin, except the guy who actually said that. You know. Of course, you know the Catholic version of that story. It's a joke. And this rock goes sailing by Jesus' head and smashes the woman in the face. And Jesus says, Mother! No. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they believe that she was sent on stage. <laughs> no. <laughs> yeah, that's an example of it. That, that it, it contains the concept here. Yeah, I guess I'm ask, I mean, these people didn't have exposure to Jesus. And without, certainly the, the, the living disciples who then went on to, to teach and preach the message. Now what? you're removed. I'm just saying, it, it was so ingrained in their theology to think that persecution was coming from God because we're doing something wrong. It's God's punishment. Right. And that's not an easy thing to turn. Now there's centuries of living that way all, you know, yes. without some... Strong. Yeah, and how did they explain the crucifixion? And, and the disciples, and the disciples, tended to fail repeatedly to get the concepts that Jesus preached across, including the very nature of Jesus. They continually failed. They were continually dragging Christianity back into Judaism as a sect or a denomination of Judaism. If it hadn't been for Paul, Christianity would have been trapped within, or unless God had chosen somebody else, Christianity, as we said earlier, would have been trapped within Judaism. So in a sense, yeah, Paul is extremely responsible and was one of the only voices saying this. Now, you do see it in John's Gospel, some. In Johannine theology, it's there. But it's weak. It's strong in Paul. Let's move on to chapter 9, unless somebody has any questions. My purpose was to give a warp speed review. Now, now that we've reached the actual midpoint of the, gospel, of, of the letter of Romans. That was the biggest running start yet. By the <laughs> running start. And one of the fastest, too. Yeah, 
Verse 1, chapter 9. I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience confirms it by the Holy Spirit. I have great sorrow. Now, just, just, just a second. I've said this many times in many studies on Paul. One of the things you must do when you read Paul's letters is read between the lines. Things are going on that we don't have immediately in front of us here. That was true in Corinth. It was true in Thessalonica. It was true in Philippi. It was true in Colossae. It was true in Ephesus. It was true in every place that Paul pastored. This letter was written to a church that Paul did not found, but he knew some of the membership there. He knew some of the problems they were going through there, and he knows some of the things that are said about him. And then one of the reasons he wrote this letter, remember, was to introduce himself to the church in Rome to obtain help from them so he could continue on to Spain. That's what he said in his letter. So he's trying to introduce himself. He's trying to introduce his theology, his understanding, and do a little bit of preemptive defense. Okay? So he starts out, I mean, it sounds kind of defensive here, doesn't it? I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience confirms it by the Holy Spirit. I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my own people, my kindred according to the flesh. I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my own people, my kindred according to the flesh. What's being said about him that he is contradicting here? It sounds like he's trying to say that he wish he wasn't affiliated with Jesus. The Jews or Jesus? I think it's the Jews. Well, I wish I didn't have to say this about my brother. But <laughs> well, I wish that myself were accursed from Christ for my brother. For I think he's being uh, probably accused of abandoning the Jews and yes. going over to the side as if there's sides to be taken. He's trying to say, my love for you is more than you can even imagine. One of the things that was being said about Paul repeatedly was said about him in Galatia, was said about him in Corinth, was said about him in, in Jerusalem, was that you couldn't trust Paul. Not, he had persecuted the church earlier, but guess what? He is such a defector to the Gentiles, you can't trust him. He hates Jews. So I can hear Jewish Christians talking amongst themselves, saying, well, why should we listen to what this Paul person says anyway. He's abandoned us. He doesn't love us. He wants us put away, ignored, cut off, removed from the family of God. Look at it again. I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart, for I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my own people, my kindred according to the flesh. I would rather myself go to hell than my fellow Jews. 
an incredible I, statement of, yes. like, of love. I, mean, I, I, it shows, shows Christ-likeness in Paul. It, shows, well, it, was, it was Jesus that said a shepherd lays down his life in the sheep. So. Yeah. But, but in the same sense, in the next paragraph, it says it's about cutting their throats. You're getting ahead. <laughs> for um, for the, uh, let's let's finish the paragraph here, and then we'll come back. They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from them, according to the flesh, comes the Messiah, who is over all. God bless forever. Amen. It is not as though the word of God has failed. For not all Israelites truly belong to Israel, and not all of Abraham's children are his true descendants. But it is through Isaac that descendants shall be for, named for you. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise who are counted as descendants. He cares for, he loves his fellow Jews. His brothers in Hebrew descendancy. His brothers in the Jewish faith. And notice this list here in verses 4 and 5. Adoption, glory, covenants, giving of the law, worship, promises, patriarchs. And from them, according to the flesh, comes the Messiah. Jesus himself was a Jew. I anguish over this. I would rather go to hell than have them be cut off. It is not as though the word of God has failed, verse 6. For not all Israelites truly belong to Israel. You might be descendant of Abraham, but you may not be Israel. And not all of Abraham's children are his true descendants. But it is through Isaac that descendants shall be named for you. I mean, you've got a whole bunch of people. I mean, just in connection with this. You've got a whole bunch of people who claim descendancy from Abraham. Well, that's good and well, but that doesn't mean anything. In and of itself. In and of itself, yeah. I mean, Ishmael had promises. God said he would deal with Ishmael. And Ishmael would be a child of God in that sense. And so would his descendants. But Abraham was, had promises, and they would come, and they, those promises would go through Isaac. So how was David related to Isaac? David was a direct descendant. Oh, he was. David, King David, is a descendant of the tribe of Judah. Now, yeah, there are... There is non-Jewish, non-Hebrew blood in him. <laughs> but but he, he is a descendant of Judah, who is, a, who is the son of Jacob, who is the son of Isaac, who is the son of Abraham. So. Uh, this means, verse 8, this means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise who are counted as descendants. The children of promise are considered descendants. And who are the children of promise? He's told us earlier. Everybody. I'm sorry? Fathers. Fathers. Those who act in faith are the children of promise. Everybody, because of the cross, have an opportunity 
if they hear the gospel, if they hear the call to respond in faith, so it is opened up to the world through Christ Jesus, not just through that narrow descendancy of the physical descendants of Abraham. The true inheritors become all those who will live by faith. Faithers. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as descendants. For this is what the promise said, that this, about this time I will return and Sarah shall have a son. Nor is that all. Something similar happened to Rebekah when she had conceived children by one husband, our ancestor Isaac. Even before, notice the use of the pronoun our there. Even before they had been born or had done anything good or bad, so that God's purpose of election might continue, not by works but by his call, she was told the elder shall serve the younger, as it is written, I have loved Jacob, but I have hated Esau. Wouldn't you say that in the context of what he's saying here when he's talking back in verse 8 about the children of the promise, that although if you look on the New Testament side, yes, it's all those of faith, but in the context of what he's talking about here, he's trying to make a distinction between that promised seed line, that bloodline. Yes. The, there is the children, the, the biological descendants of Abraham who have the promises and in the process sequence down, who have the relationship, who have the Torah, who have the law, therefore, who have that covenant relationship with God. There are those children who are the biological descendants. But Paul has said, and he says over in Galatians, and he says here, that it's not so much the biological descendants, but rather those descendants who, who, who meet the criteria of Abraham, Sarah, and Isaac who act in faith and therefore produce the child of promise. We are called to act in faith and those who act in faith become the child of promise. The true descendants of Abraham theologically, spiritually, are not the biological descendants except in those cases where the biological descendants do it too, which is exercise faith. Hence, the covenant of Moses preceded by the covenant of faith in Abraham doesn't undo faith. It doesn't wipe out the way of faith. The way of faith is the way for all of us. The law gets in the way. The rules and regulations get in the way. They teach us of our need of Christ. But they can get in the way of exercising faith because they pretend to say, faith is insufficient, you must now also have all of these good characteristic works. The message of James. Like churches today get in the way. Yeah. Churches say, okay, you can come in, but then you have to abide by these rules and regulations that we say are important. And various churches have various sets of rules and regulations. And, and Paul is saying, no. 
It's not your genetic descendancy. It's do you live by faith? What faith is, what is he trying to show here? Is this a part of the timeline in the book being already written and God knowing the end of the yes. chapter? Of the, yeah, that makes it a lot easier when it's yes. about love. But Esau, I hate it. Sounds like now, Esau never okay, let's hit that. Yeah, Let me ask a question. Yes. When they were offered the law, were there what indication that they had to, that faith was the important thing, not the law? Well, that pre, the law, the faith predated the law in Abraham. It predated the law in Moses. And that was the way of life that Abraham lived. His faith was accounted to him as righteousness. So that predated their experience. But faith, in essence, was too difficult, in a sense, for the simplicity they wanted easy to list rules and regulations to follow. Six, Not the sometimes ambiguity of faith. 600 and something long yes. word. Simple. <laughs> it is simpler to have the list than to, than to be called to exercise by faith with no list. Were there prophets also saying that you must do the law, but you must have the faith? They would say that exercising the law would be the equivalent of faith. And built into the law was the necessity of faith by the fact that they, had, they did the sacrifices. And that was really the fading action to understand that the sacrifices that they were doing, God would keep his word and forgive them of their sins. See, they couldn't live the law in its perfection. So the sacrificial system existed. And they could trust, let's use that word, they could trust that God would keep his word and allow their sins to be projected onto that animal that would then be slaughtered for them and the blood would then be used to pay for their sins so that even though they couldn't live the law in its perfection, the sacrifice could then make up for the difference. And that's where faith is incorporated in part. But faith is incorporated in another part in the very core of the law. And Jesus is quoting the Old Testament in the Torah itself when he says that when he was asked what is the greatest commandment, he says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all the soul, with all your strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. The core of the law. The very core of the law is love the Lord your God. And you cannot love the Lord your God without faith. Without faith, it is impossible to please God. So it is rooted in the center of it. But because the ambiguity of it was so hard, they said, give us laws and rules and regulations that we could list. Yeah, I don't want to have to abide by that 600 plus number. That's insane. But they wanted a nice long list of rules. And when you start making rules, you just can't stop at 10, friends. <laughs> If they hadn't had the rules about the blood and the pigs and all that, they wouldn't have lived long enough. Well, there were aspects of the Jewish law that were more culturally oriented to the reality of the fact that hygiene was critical. And many of those laws are hygienically oriented and apply in that context. I grant you that. But there were lots of laws. I mean, maybe it had to do with the sanity for the gentlemen, but the women, when they were in a period, had to stay outside the camp. And for good reason. <laughs> uh, 
you, you know, God was very good to them because they wanted a king too, somebody they could see. Yeah. But then God wanted to be over them, but that wasn't enough. The preference was for God to be king. But the people said, no, 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 give us a king. Uh, so you got Saul. What a disaster that was. We got, they wanted, God wanted faith. The people wanted regulations and rules that they could see listed instead of that ambiguity of faith. And look what a mess that gave us. But no one said at the time, okay, you have to have both. You have to have both. They gave them the law. Faith came first. Law gets grafted on top of it. This is, is that what the people Paul. do? Yeah, this is what you're speaking. Is Paul. Paul's inter I'm, everything I'm saying here is part of Paul's interpretation. That Paul views the law as laying down on top of faith. He talks about the covenant relationship in Abraham with God being a covenant of faith, on top of which the law is piled. The law coming later cannot abrogate the covenant relationship of faith. They exist together. And if you really are going to live the law, then faith is rooted in its middle. But would you say that the law, in Paul's view, the law is actually, I mean, faith is actually the foundation of, of salvation, and the law comes along to define it like as a school as a schoolmaster, as, to, as to, to teach us that, say, for example, what Satan said in the garden, that you can know the difference between good and evil and be like God, is not, not true. That the foundation of our salvation is faith. Yes. The, it's the root. It's the, it's the fundamental interior core. But who taught faith. them that? And that's what I think he's getting. The faith? Who taught them? What prophet? Isaiah, you know, you could interpret him in cycles. A little bit about Jesus or a lot about Jesus, but what prophet, what, who besides Paul after the death of Jesus, well, after the death of Jesus? Crucifixion and rising. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, who taught them, I think of what we're getting to here, that faith, that what we're recognizing through Paul was so intertwined and that faith was the foundation. Who taught these people? Because I remember Lisa saying from Corinthians or Galatians, one of those, the, the signposts, the signs were like, the laws were like signposts. Yes. Which way to go up, oh, going too fast, so I gotta slow down. Watch out for the curve. That was a great illustration. It is a great Who illustration. Who taught them that oh before forget the speed limit, just remember where you're going. Remember the journey. Remember your beginning and remember the end. Who taught them faith? Other than Paul. Paul. Thank you. <laughs> That's what I thought you were going to say. That's what. <laughs> That's what. That doesn't seem fair. <laughs> no one said it would be fair. It's his idea. He came up with it. Yeah. <laughs> it was revealed to him. Yeah. Well. Okay. Then okay. He, thank you. Yes. He exactly. came in and said, "I'm going to, I'm going to reassess everything after it's done." Well, that's pretty easy to do. Yeah. In a sense. <laughs> revisionist. Yeah. It's a revisionist. Well, the okay. The that good. Exactly the Jewish Christian community. The James party would look at Paul and said, you are a revisionist. Yeah, and this argument would make absolutely no sense to a, a Christian Jew. That's a Jewish Christian. And yet yeah. it's an argument he's making. Oh, he's so making I would, it I would say it different. I would say I don't think he's talking to Jews here at all, the, uh, whether they believe in Christ or not. Because he refers to them as they all the time. He refers to the yeah. Jews as they. He's talking to he's talking primarily people from the, from the Gentile. Well, because uh, no Jew would would understand that there was faith before there was the law. 
Unless I was at the room, no, and they wouldn't accept it. Unless I was Jews. I disagree with that. I think that before the king, before God gave the Hebrews the king, what he wanted them was to be spiritually led in their lives, and they just had so much physical reality around them, plus what was going on that they had trouble with that. And that's well, why they wanted that's why they begged for signposts. I think Well you may God, be right, but I'm saying that Paul faith but, to begin with, but Jews wouldn't accept there. that argument in Paul's day. But I still think that he was making the argument to Jewish rooted, culturally Jewish Christians. Mm-hmm. Now whether or not he was effective is a matter, <laughs> exactly. which is exactly. what you're pointing out. He wouldn't here, talk to Abraham, about Isaac, verse 10. Nor is that they, they had to come in by this time. They had to come in yeah. to the to yeah, the to the Christian church, which was basically a Jewish thing. In some places, yes, but in many of the places where Paul had founded churches, they were almost entirely Gentile, with only tiny little snippets of Judaism here and there. Um, I think the point. He is talking to, he's attempting to talk to Jewish Christians in arguing for the Gentile Christians. The Gentile Christians are listening along, listening along as Paul is dictating this, or this is being read from Paul's letter. But his principal audience tends to be Jewish Christians who believe that it's important for these Gentiles to become Jews in order to complete being Christians. And Paul is saying it's not addition of the law on top of it that makes them a good Christian. You continue to be a Christian the way you started, by faith. That's what he says in the letter to the Galatians. And at the beginning of this section, he starts it off by talking to the brethren and yeah. telling them. So it's, it's all related to back to the beginning of chapter 9 where he's telling them how he would be willing to die and be If they could become truly, if if the non-Christian Jews and the Jewish Christians could become fully Christian instead of depending upon the works of the law for part of their salvation or to complete it or for their sanctification, if they could do that, I would be willing to give up my own eternal life. Yeah, and they might have interpreted the same way Linda and I did that he's He's distancing. He is distancing. Distancing himself. Yeah, distancing himself from Jesus. Distancing himself. Yeah, they're distancing. He's distancing. He's disrespecting himself. He's disrespecting himself and Jesus. They could, that could have been misinterpreted. Could have been. Maybe. Unless, unless you were a Gentile, a Roman Gentile, that, and then you just. So I got to be. I agree with what you said and what Greg said. I think it makes very logical. Paul and you haven't said this before. Paul has given the Gentiles a whole bunch of firewood. That's exactly what he's doing. Yeah. He is yeah, defending exactly. the Gentiles vis a vis Jewish Christians and non Christian Jews who are giving the Gentile Christians hell. Exactly. Wait, wait till you get to the next chapter. Now, but, but it's, not, it's not Paul talking. This is God talking. This is the way the church thinks. This is not Paul giving his opinion. This is God well, coming straight well, through. When they say the way Paul. the church says it. You know, Paul some places, like in the Corinthian letters from time to time, he'll say, this is my opinion. 
I don't have a word of the Lord for this, but I have my opinion. And then some places I have a word of the Lord. He'll, he'll do that sometimes. This is Paul's argument here. And the church takes it as having, well, having inspiration. Now, you can talk about what that means. But, yeah, this is, this is in part, it's articulating God's word in human words. But let's, I want to finish this bit, get down here to Jacob I loved and Esau I hated, because this will point up the fact that actually he's trying to, trying to reach his Jewish Christian and non-Christian Jewish brethren and sister here. He's trying to reach through to them by saying, I haven't abandoned you. I'd rather go to hell and see you saved than have you cut off. I'd, and he said, they have the promises, they have the law. My goodness, even the Messiah himself was a Jew. And then he says, it comes down to God's choice. God chooses the elect. God chooses people of faith. As it is written, I have loved Jacob, but I have hated Esau. Oh, God. <laughs> that that one, a quote from that's a quote straight out of guess where? Who has it? Deuteronomy. Huh? Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy what? Uh, 21. Deuteronomy 21. Straight out of the Torah. It sounds like it would be. <laughs> I have, shall I read it? Yes, read it. She's got it. If a man have two wives, one beloved and another hated, and they have borne him children, both the beloved and the hated, and if the firstborn son be hers that was hated. Wow. Yeah. That's a little years. stretch, I think. Yes, but think about the point, th think about yeah. think about the children here, Esau and Jacob. Jacob was was a loved son. Esau was a loved son of the father of Isaac. Who was the favorite of Isaac? Esau. 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 The hairy one. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, hairy, old hairy. My goodness, you have the hands and arms of, of Esau and the voice of Jacob. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> got a cold, got a cold. Blind father can't tell the sons apart. That's a sad story. What is it meaning here? Why does he say, as it is written, I have, God speaking, I have loved Jacob, but I have hated Esau? Paul says it's his choice. Huh? God's choice. Not by works. Nothing that you do earns God's love. It's God's choice. It's God's choice to love you. For Paul. Huh? For Paul. Oh, yeah. Not only for Paul, but also he's, he's quoting other scripture references, even just further down where it says God's out of Exodus. You know, I will have mercy, mercy on whom I will have mercy. mercy. And compassion on who I will have compassion, and not on those who I it's God's choice. I have loved Jacob. Now, a lot of people have really hated this passage. I don't like it either, Paul. Why did the heck did you quote that? But the wording here is interesting. Hated. We think of hate as a very negative emotional. Causes you to beat up on people, that kind of thing. That's not what the word here is used in Greek. The word... 
is Mesuo. I wrote it in English letters just to be helpful. Mesuo. There it is in Greek. Mesuo. Mesuo means it's the same word when Jesus says, if you hate not your mother, father, sister, brother, yea, your own life also, you cannot be my disciple. What does he mean here? Well, one of the one of the gospel authors tells us out and translates that as uh, if you prefer mother, father, sister, and brother over me, you cannot be my disciple. Mesuo means it's a relative word. It means to prefer less. So you could translate this, Jacob I have loved, Esau I preferred less. Huh? Yeah. Yeah. Jacob was my favorite would be another way of saying it in a positive sense without having to beat on poor Esau. It's like a, it's well, the opposite of Abraham. And they were twins too. So that, yeah. That's not very nice. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, even with your kids. As a parent. It doesn't mean you don't love the one, but even with your children, it's easy yeah. to favor one over another if that one is constantly seeking the things that are true and a value to you. And as God with the children, if he sees a child that's constantly seeking to trust him and to faith him and putting him first, it, 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 makes, it makes sense. He already chose that guy anyway. That would be fabulous, and I agree completely, but you know what? Jacob was a dirty, rotten scoundrel, yes. a scoundrel, <laughs> monster, and a cheat. He was a cheat. He lied to his but blind father. He lied to his blind father. He cheated his Uncle Laban. Of course, his Uncle Laban was a cheat, too. Yeah. I mean, it's a fabulous story. And it comes time to meet his brother Esau again, and he has every right to be absolutely terrified of his brother Esau, because his brother Esau had every right to kill him. No wonder he hated him. He knew the line. Yeah. <laughs> but, wasn't it, but wasn't it Esau that valued a good meal over the birthright? The it was yeah. Esau who valued a good meal over what he was valued. important. Hey, if you're going to die of starvation, <laughs> that birthright doesn't mean a whole lot. Yeah, he, thought, he, he said he was going to die. He was just starving to death. But he, never, he never said he was perfect. I mean, that yeah. favorite child, just because, I mean, he doesn't have to be perfect. Oh, thank God. I mean, the good news is if God is willing to use and work through dirty, rotten scoundrels like Jacob, maybe there's a chance for us. I mean, that's, that's preachable right there. But this statement here is simple. There's a preference here. There's a preference for those whom God chooses. And God chose Jacob. Why? Esau is a likable person. Certainly more forgiving than Jacob is in many respects. But God chose Jacob possibly to teach us of the importance of forgiveness as an object lesson. And the fact that we, we aren't perfect and God will still use us. I mean, it's an Jacob is, if nothing else, an object lesson that God will use us. Uh, the sons of Jacob were dirty, rotten scoundrels. Joseph was an arrogant, um, pansy boy. 
and lorded it over his brethren. Lorded it over his brethren. Y'all are going to be bow down and bowing down and worshiping me. Don't blame him for wanting to get rid of him. He was a brat. He was a brat. God chooses some people that I don't think I'd choose. Good. Because guess what? I probably wouldn't choose me. But God does. He's talk, in this Malachi, he's talking to Israel. Yes. And that's, that's his example. <laughs> that's his example. I have loved you, says the Lord, but you ask, how have you loved us? And that was, his, that was the way he I have loved Jacob and I have hated Esau. That's, that was his answer. But what are we to say? Verse 14. Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. <laughs> Let's see, is that what I think it is? Is that the word I think it is? <laughs> Meganoita. Hell no. <laughs> is there injustice on God's part? Hell no. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. So it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who shows mercy. For the scriptures say to Pharaoh, I have raised you up for the very purpose of showing my power in you, so that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he chooses, and he hardens the heart on whomever he chooses. Well, that's a really Calvinistic phrase, passage right there. They love that. That doesn't sound like a nice no. <laughs> well, well, I mean, think about it. God, it, it, this is a reference to the plagues. And what was the purpose of the plagues? To show God's wonders. To show God's, that God is God, God has power, and by cracky, you do what I say, or you're going to wish you had. And he could do that Pharaoh said, okay, I got it the first time around. Pharaoh was willing to give up pretty easily. I'm sorry. I got these lo- I got this long list of plagues. I gotta set these plagues loose. I'm sorry, Pharaoh. Harden, harden. Okay, now I'll smite you again. Yeah. But that was so that we, the readers, people later in history, could see and know about the wonders of God. Mm. And this is all in support of his notion of, of the two pronged descendants, right? You've got the descendants of the flesh and the descendants mm-hmm. of the promise. And it's and God wants to do it? It's, it doesn't matter, you Jewish Christians. It doesn't matter that you're descendants of Abraham. That's a good thing. Happy. What's more important that you're a descendant of the, by promise, by faith. I'm glad you said that, Pete, because I was getting real hung up on this justice thing. <laughs> and wondering what, what kind of justice we have here. None. Thank you. It's God's choice. That's not what it said. It's God's choice. Exactly. You don't have justice. There's not. That's a human concept. It's you're talking about human justice. Right. Yes. That's correct. God's justice is whatever He does. Whenever He shows mercy. By when by when God keeps God's word. That's justice. But you don't want that. No. Because you'd be a, a wet spot on the floor. That's why we like the mercy part. You see. We want the mercy. We want the favor. We want the grace. We want the peace. We want Jesus to come and stand in the breach for us. We don't want justice. You'd say you want justice, but you don't. 
Justice is you getting wiped out, blown away. Well, we only want justice if we think something's happened against us. So we want justice against somebody for else. For the that's right. Yes. Not for ourselves. We want somebody else to get theirs. Yeah. But we want forgiveness. We want, we want a break. Yep. I, I use the illustration in this Bible study. Between justice, mercy, and grace. You're speeding down the road. And the cop pulls you over and gives you a ticket. We're going 60 miles an hour in a 30 mile an hour zone. That's justice. You're speeding down the road. Cop pulls you over. And doesn't give you a ticket. For going 16 or 30 mile per hour zone. That's mercy. But grace is you're speeding down the road through a, through a school zone. Going 120 miles per hour. And the cop pulls you over. And gives you $100. That's grace. listening to a Bible study by Dr. Gregory Neal, Senior Pastor of St. Stephen United Methodist Church and Rector of Grace Incarnate Ministries. Copyright 2009 by Dr. Gregory S. Neal. All rights reserved. For more information or to listen to other seminars, Bible studies, or sermons by Dr. Gregory Neal, visit us on the web at www.revneal.org. That's www.revneal.org. You are also invited to visit us in person at St. Stephen United Methodist Church, 2520 Oates Drive, Mesquite, Texas, 75150. This program was produced by Dr. Greg Neal.